Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Change of seasons, cold grip the United States, we're ready for winter. But that means bowl season in colleges, it means NFL crunch time, and it means hockey, basketball continue. It also means the MLS World Cup uh, final, the MLS Cup in soccer. We're going to cover all of those things today with the help of our digital editor, Amy Tenery. Amy, how are you? Hey, I'm great, thank you. You know, you might be ready for winter because you're down there in Florida. I'm not so sure about myself. Yeah, but look, all of you all, all of you, uh, 40 million people in the Northeast broadly defined made a life choice. So go ahead and freeze. I don't particularly <laughs> that is care. Fair. So, right. Yeah. I can crash on your couch if things get yeah, out of you hand, can, right? <laughs> and you can, uh, you know, when the Mets pitching staff's ERA is below three again, you're more than welcome to come over. Excellent. So, how's that? Excellent. All right, let's start with college football. It is a big time. The conference championships have ended. Bowls are right around the corner. The college football playoff, a lot of controversy maybe came up with the right decision. So what, what's your general thought on all this? Yeah, so, you know, I was looking over the notes for, for the show today, and, and one thing that stuck out to me was how strong the viewership had been, uh, you know, for these conference championship uh, weekend. Um, and it struck me that, you know, compared to the NFL, which has been seeing declining ratings, you know, declining interest among fans. And I was kind of interested to get your take on it. Is there something that college football is doing right that the NFL is doing wrong? Or is it simply a matter of the fan base just being fundamentally different? Well, that's a really good point on both counts. Teeing it up, you know, there are record attendances, the SEC championship, Georgia beating Auburn, about 77,000 people, 75 for the Clemson blowout of Miami, 65, 66, Dallas, Indianapolis, respectively. But the bigger issue, as you said, is the ratings. They drew eights, nearly nines for the championship games. Now it's bowling season. Next week, we'll talk about the specific bowls. So it was a dramatic time in college football. We knew that there were only four teams going to the playoffs, but they were basically, you could consider them quarterfinal games for the semifinals that are happening New Year's weekend. And so the rotation of the big bowl games coupled with the championship series, when you think of all of that, it is a major issue. And I think what college is doing right is it's just the time of year. It's the Mm. Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving, this is the time when everybody knows you're going to get into the bowls, into the championship season, then you get geared up for the bowls during the holidays. I think the NFL's time to shine is late December when you see who makes the playoffs and who doesn't, and obviously the playoffs themselves and the Super Bowl the first week in February in Minnesota. Also, the demographics. You know, the alumni of college football are strong, avid, well-heeled spending fans. We'll get into the bowls next week and the week after, but that's why these smaller bowls that have nobody in the stands survive because everybody watches them on TV and everybody is from those colleges and they all buy merchandise and they all buy advertising product from the network. So it's, I think it's a combination of all of that. 
Yeah, I mean that that makes sense to me. You know, if you're if you're an alum of you know Georgia versus somebody who just happens to live near Atlanta, you know you're you might feel that sense of loyalty and, and devotion to rooting for Georgia than you you know more so than you might rooting for the Falcons. I think that's probably right, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why college football at the Thanksgiving time of year will always outshine some of the Week 12, Week 13 NFL games. You know, you go to the NFL, and a couple of really important things are happening. $89 million over the next seven years on select projects, criminal justice reform, law enforcement, community relations, and education. So the players have a platform, and they also have the dollars to implement. Same time, Roger Goodell signs his contract extension. So, you know, maybe it's easier, less turbulent days ahead for the NFL. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, signing this contract extension, I, I think that there's a lot of pressure on Goodell right now to perform and to turn this ship around. Um, and I think what's interesting right now from a purely PR perspective is the NFL is facing a, a two-pronged challenge. On the one hand, they have uh, conservative viewers who take exception to players who protest during the national anthem. And then you also have more liberal viewers who, uh, frankly, feel that those players who are protesting during the anthem have been treated really, really badly. So he has to find a way to appeal to both groups. Um, I think this, you know, this this 89 million uh deal to fund projects dealing with criminal justice reform and law enforcement and community community relations. That's certainly a a step in the right direction. Um, And of course, I think it was, was it last month? I'm I'm starting to lose track, but they had a whole military appreciation month. So you can tell that the NFL is working hard um, to appeal to as many different demographics uh, as possible. But I mean, do you, do you think he can succeed? Well, he gets the contract extension. It is stable. And I've been saying all along that the issue of kneeling and not kneeling for the national anthem is an important issue to many and a galvanizing one Mm -hmm. either way. But I think for the players to understand that there is a time and place for everything and these are employees and this is the workplace, it has to be coupled with something else, which is meaningful respect and awareness that what they're protesting has some merit. And so these dollars are not just empty dollars. It's nearly $100 million. And so when you give money to causes that the players are supporting, then not only do you respect those players and you respect those causes, but you validate the fact that these are platforms for social good. So I would argue that what this will mean is less protest because in many ways what the players were protesting for the NFL has now acknowledged, and it's not a giving in. I think it's a respect for the process, and everybody wins. I think I totally agree with you, and I think what has maybe frustrated um, so many is this idea that they these players are quote unquote protesting the anthem. They're not protesting the anthem. They're using that moment as an opportunity to shine light on very valid issues. And so I think you're completely dead on. I think this is the league showing them that, yes, we do actually recognize what this is all about, and we want to do something about it. You and I agree on this. I think we're going to have a lot of pundits who always come along later. That's the beauty of what we do. We always flag it a few days ahead of everybody else. And I think (laughs) what they're going to say is Roger Goodell is now pretty stable, and the biggest issue is not behind them, but they're treating it the right way. And I think that's where it is now. And I think we strap it on and head for some fairly exciting football down the stretch. 
and time will tell whether at uh, you know the second week in January after we're all leaving Minnesota, do we look back on this as a successful season? By the way, make your prediction right now. Who wins the Super Bowl two months before it happens? Oh, oh gosh. Oh, who wins the Super Bowl? The problem is I want to say my New England Patriots, but I think like, what is it? Like half the team is injured. So, um, oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know. The Steelers, maybe? I, uh, what do you, I'll what tell do you what. Think? Since that is such a fervent and strong prediction, <laughs> I'm going to say we're going to talk to you about it next month, and I'm going to go with the Patriots right now. What do you think? Oh, that's awesome. Okay, yeah, yeah let's do it. Patriots. Awesome. 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 Let's shift to soccer because there's something more immediate happening. The MLS Cup is happening this next week when we run this for the first time. But the bigger story is Detroit, Cincinnati, Nashville, Sacramento announced as the four finalists to land expansion franchises, and that will be picked, the two will be picked in the next few months. The unsuccessful two go back in the pot for expansion for two more next year. What's your thought generally on this? Well, what I thought was so interesting about these four cities that are lined up is that Detroit actually, in their bid, if I'm understanding this correctly, they're not actually going to be proposing building uh, a, a new soccer stadium. They're going to repurpose Ford Field. They're, they're going to play, or they would hypothetically play, where the Lions, um, where the Lions do. And I, I think this really dovetails nicely to a topic you and I have just been discussing a lot lately, which is uh, public funding of stadium uh, stadiums, I should say. Uh, I think that makes Detroit a very, very attractive bid. They already have the infrastructure in place. You know they're not going to be asking to, uh, you know, for public tax exemptions to build something new. Um, but it, it could be that MLS wants to see something new built. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would be very excited to see uh, a team go to Detroit. I think that's a really, really good fit. What, uh, what do you think? Well, it is interesting that the soccer-specific stadium parts of the Nashville, Cincinnati, and Sacramento bid are very strong. They point to the multi-purpose uh, facilities with soccer uh, and concerts uh, that have sprung up that help MLS teams, uh, Chicago, uh, Houston, uh, Dallas, just to name a few, and they're all successful. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at Atlanta, the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where the college football championship will be, and the home of the Atlanta Falcons is the home of FC Atlanta, and they've been drawing 50,000, 60,000 people for games. So both ideas work. The idea of joint venturing or partnering with the Lions and the Ford family in that building it has great appeal because it also brings the promotional machinery of the Lions to bear for the soccer franchise. So I think Detroit gets one, to be candid about it. And I also think probably Sacramento gets the next one because they've been in this game for a while and they look like their bid has been there, sustained. And I do think Cincinnati and Nashville go back in the pot and may get the franchises two years from now, a really significant benefit for them. So soccer wins across North America. The franchises are becoming much more valuable than they were before. Yeah. They they definitely are. It's 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 encouraging as a, a a soccer fan to see that there are actually cities that are are putting forward aggressive bids and and maybe this can continue to expand uh, across the country. Well, and the interesting thing about this too is that the idea of a existing big four sports organization 
owning the soccer franchise and the soccer stadium is not new, and they do it all over the place, leading us kind of interestingly to our interview today. Tim Bezbachenko is the general manager of Toronto FC, and he speaks for soccer in basically Toronto. The MLS, the Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment Group, owns that franchise, but they also own the Raptors and Air Canada Centre and a lot of the other venues in Toronto. And the interesting thing about that, too, is that that team competes for the MLS Cup this week. So you're talking about putting a great team on the field and a great team in the boardroom. Tim and I shared some time at the Primetime Sports Conference two weeks ago, and you have the benefit of his insights, Tim Bezbachenko. Senior Vice President, Toronto FC. You do everything relating to Toronto FC. Thank you for being yeah. here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate Bez it. Bez from now on, right? As a yeah, you just works. call me Bez. It's much easier. So give us the state generally of the MLS, broadly mm. defined. Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, so the league has, has experienced exponential growth yeah. in the last, really, 10 years, but even more so in the last few years. We are still in expansion mode. So uh, we had two, two new teams this year. Uh, LA FC comes in next year. Mm -hmm. uh, this year it was Atlanta. It was a story of Atlanta. It's 71,000 in their Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Arthur Blank shares with the Falcons, uh, as well as Minnesota. Uh, and so um, they've just announced it looks like Miami with David Beckham is coming in in a few years, like I said, LAFC. And, and they're going to announce another round of expansion. So explosive growth, but even on the player side, on the front side of front office side of things, uh, what I've noticed is the calls I receive for for players who are interested in coming into the league has has also grown. So there's an awareness, and I comes I think that comes with uh, a lot having to do with the broadcast deals internationally. So the league has grown from my time at the league when there was only 10 teams when I was working there to now when they're 22 and we're going to grow to 28. It's really an exciting time, but uh, but I really do think it reflects the broadcast, but the product on the field. It's just getting better and better each year. Well, and frankly, you have a great perspective from which to analyze that. You were a all-world player at Richmond, and then you were at the USL. And <laughs> I'm not sure I call it all-world, but well, I, I, I held my let, own. <laughs> let me describe the resume the yes, way yes, I want okay, to, okay? okay? But you certainly were yeah. uh, very important in, in, uh, in, in college soccer and then mm -hmm. the USL, the, 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 the second league yep. here. So you cover the waterfront, league office, yep. and now you're kind of shepherding a team in the largest city in Canada. Uh, the different skills, uh, translated uh, skills. What's the commonality? Yeah, I, I think for me it's 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 a blend, right? And I and I dip into each of the yeah. the, the tools every day. Being a lawyer, uh, former lawyer, in terms of being process oriented, I think especially in our league where we don't have the highest salary caps around the world. In fact, we're one of the few, if not the only, league that has one. We have to be creative, and we actually have to turn someone who might be uh, maybe paid millions around the world and and have them agree to come to our league and get paid less. So you have to be process oriented, which is what you know my legal background comes in play obviously I had to have played the game and so to work in the game you, you you either play or you really are passionate about it especially again with our league that's growing and so uh, and then obviously having worked in the league office you know the relationships from the league office but also how it worked our single entity structure uh, which is a single ownership of all the league is unique and and um, it, the rules and regulations are different because of that so uh, depending on the day I got to dip into each bucket uh, but it's helpful to have all those experiences ownership groups some are independent some are just soccer oriented yep. you guys in this situation here 
here have a relationship with a lot of the big, if not all of the big sports franchises in town. And yeah. so how does that all work? Uh, model clearly group mm -hmm. ownership of all of the franchises, but as you're in Toronto, as you sit here today, would you rather have a franchise owner that only deals with soccer or would you rather have the vertically integrated structure that you found yourself The in? integrated structure is a competitive advantage, yeah. not just because it's more enjoyable because I like basketball and yeah. hockey, uh, but because um, the ability to learn from each other is, is second to none. So when I was at the league officing, I got recruited to come up to Toronto. One, I didn't know how incredible of a city it was. So when yeah. I came up here in September, it was just, it really truly is world class. But two, to work at MLSE where you can share thought, uh, share thoughts and ideas with with uh, Shani and, and, mm -hmm. and Kyle Dubas with the, with the hockey team, uh, certainly with Masai and Bobby and at the time Je uh, Jeff Weltman with the Raptors is unique. And in our league, there's only a few teams that have sort of sister teams. And for me, that that was a game changer. And, and, and for example, we just got free agency two years ago and because it was new to our league, I tapped into the, the knowledge of Maasai and asked mm. them some tricks of the trade, and we used that, and, and it helped us sign uh, Drew Moore, one of our uh, standout defenders the last couple of years. Down south, we're all lamenting about the U.S. not making yep. the World Cup, uh, and so I'm sure there is a perspective up here about that. What's your perspective about that? Yeah, it's it's so deep and complicated. I don't think that there's one issue. The one thing I would say is it's not a result of just the loss against Trinidad, yeah, right? That, 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 that is, right. Yeah. It, it is something that spans, I think, two or three years ago uh, from building a roster that was deep enough to withstand uh, the, the rigors of CONCACAF uh, competition, yeah. but also creating an identity so that when other teams come play us at home where you must win or at least get a result, you can't lose those games, but you have the identity to get you over the top so um, you know we could talk all day and sit here and talk about the developmental structure yeah. uh, but I think we're we're, we're, we're only going up um, we have a robust uh, sort of second division which is when I played in the league back in, in, in sort of the early 2000s there was no movement of players up and down now there's a lot of movement between the second division and the first division, which is fantastic for player development. Yeah. So players know that are coming up through the academy system or out of college, hey, I'm going to cut my teeth in the USL, learn how to be a pro, and then I'm going to step up. That's only going to help our game, and that's going to help the national team be successful, whether or not you're in Canada or the U.S., both, both, both countries. Both countries as it relates to the World Cup next year and then Qatar four years later. Is it let's survive and thrive notwithstanding? Is that part of the whole strategy? Um, you know, I, well right now I, th I think it's an opportunity now that it hasn't, you know, obviously yeah. we're not making the World Cup, but it's an opportunity now to look toward the next uh, uh, World Cup, which is in Qatar, which frankly we should have been hosting, yeah. uh, at least in North America right. in the first place. But there's an opportunity, one, because we can have a longer outlook on things. You know, being as a general manager, you're always keeping your eye on, on Saturday, but also Saturday three years from now. Uh, for the national teams now, you're really starting to look at, at, at five years from now and, and how can you place yourself in a position where you can qualify but also have success at the tournament. And, and I think both Canada and the U.S. both have to look at having success in the tournament, not just qualifying. Who would have thought years ago that franchises would be going for $150 million and more if mm -hmm. Don Garber yeah. gets his way for the next round of expansion? Where does this go, and are we thinking in the same breath quality-wise of Premier League and La Liga, uh, Bundesliga, et cetera? Um, 
Why not? I, I, I think that our ownership is world class, right? You, you, a lot of these owners own NFL teams, yeah. basketball teams. There's no reason to think that we can't dream uh, and put into place initiatives that will get us on par with those, with those other leagues. Now, are we there right now? No, but, but I think through initiatives of the league and being smart with our spending on, on product quality on the pitch, we can get there. Um, the designated player rule helps. The new targeted allocation money rule helps in terms of categories of players. But the one thing we have going for us is that almost every player I've met in the world is very intrigued about MLS and they want to live in North America. Our quality of life is really second to none, not bragging about our countries, but but we but it is an incredible place to live. And so you put that together and then you talk about ability to transcend your sport. You can really only do that in North America in terms of, of being able to experience other sporting uh, uh, opportunities and being bigger than just an athlete and having a career after the sport. I think that's what MLS provides to uh, soccer players around the world that, that other clubs can't provide. NBC, tip of the spear, leading our weekend viewing, focusing on Premier League and mm -hmm. then Fox taking it over. Yep. Not taking it over, but also uh, being part of that whole market share. Uh, good for MLS, good for the sport that we as Americans and North Americans can see how beautiful the game is live on weekends or is it an opportunity to see how different the quality is? I think um, 10 years ago, yeah. you know, sort of the, the case of high tide raises all boats, but I think I think now, I think we're at a position where we need to be independent from, from uh, the other sports leagues and we need to, to showcase our sport in our two countries. Um, and so I think what we've learned from the NBC sort of on Saturday, Sunday mornings is that the importance of having uh, a designated time for MLS soccer to be on during the weekend or the week, right? People have to start to... Um, carve their life around MLS, not just soccer, but around MLS, right? You have NFL at 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock. Everyone knows that. And so we need to start finding our place within the, the broadcasting community where people know the game's going to be on. It's going to be a good It's going to be a good show and good product entertaining soccer. And I think that's what we've learned from from sort of the other soccer that we're, that we're dealing with uh, on a weekly basis. Where's the league, A, and soccer in North America, B, five years from now? Wow, um, not not a seuss there, but I do think that we've um, we are regularly competing from a attendance standpoint, from a revenue standpoint, and frankly, from a player standpoint, with some of the leagues, uh, you know, the the French league, um, certainly in in Holland. I think our our first competing league that we need to show show that we can beat on a regular basis is Mexico. Uh, their salary caps around 30 to 50 million dollars. Ours are really 10 to 20 uh, on the high end. So uh, it's not just about player spend. Um, we've shown that we can compete from a com soccer standpoint with leagues that are you know, quadruple what we're spending, uh, but at some point it does come down to competition. And so what we want to do over the next five years is we're going to be competing and, be, and winning CONCACAF Champions League. We want to be competing in the Club World Cup, and I think it, it behooves clubs like us at Toronto FC and a few other clubs that are leading the way in MLS to get to those, you know, competitions and to win them. The guy started with, uh, you know, Richmond soccer, then he's USL and league office. Hero for soccer in North America. Tim, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. 
Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.